You're listening to LeMay's Inferno here on Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM. August 9th, 1945. The Manchurian Frontier. The rising of the eastern sun marks the three-month anniversary of the surrender of Nazi Germany. Months before, in Yalta, Joseph Stalin had promised then-President Franklin Delano Roosevelt that three months after the surrender of Germany, he would turn his Red Army loose on the Japanese. The time had come for Stalin to fulfill his promise, and as the red rays of sunshine began to reflect off the Manchurian steppe, over one and a half million Soviet troops, aided by over 27,000 artillery pieces and 5,500 tanks, prepared for battle. Opposing them, 700,000 Japanese troops of the Kwangtung Army waited unaware of the Soviet threat. While nobody in the Western world could have known at the time, the largest land offensive of the Pacific War was about to begin with an onslaught of Soviet artillery fire from 27,000 cannons. Welcome to the seventh and final episode of LeMay's Inferno, here on Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM. I'm your host, Carter McNish. Previously, we covered the intensifying pressure campaign the U.S. was employing on the Japanese by sea with their submarine blockade, and by air through firebombing and the deployment of two atomic bombs. Today, we cover the Soviet entry into the Pacific War, the deliberations in Japanese high command as to whether or not they should surrender, an attempted coup to overthrow and perhaps kill Emperor Hirohito by Japanese militarists, the final days of Imperial Japan, and the surrender ceremony that ended the deadliest war in human history aboard the USS Missouri in Tokyo Bay on September 2nd, 1945. After their massive artillery barrage was complete, the Red Army, battle-hardened and experienced in mobile warfare after their four-year struggle with the Wehrmacht, made quick work of the Japanese border defenses. The Kwangtung army was severely under strength, with much of their force having been redeployed to garrison far-flung islands in Japan's empire, many having been recently deployed to defend Japan itself against the impending American invasion. What forces remained were mostly conscripts hailing from Korea or Manchuria, most barely trained. They stood no chance against the masses of Soviet artillery and tanks. Within hours, the Soviets had punched through large gaps in the Soviet lines and were running amok in the Japanese rear areas. A few hours after the initial breakthrough, the Soviet and Japanese troops saw an odd, bright, and brief flash of light coming from the southeast. It was the second time they had seen it in three days, but they did not know or care what it was. Typical of Red Army plans, the Soviet Far East Command, under the command of Marshal of the Soviet Union Alexander Vasilevsky, had a very simple plan for taking over Manchuria albeit on a gargantuan scale. The Soviets deployed two pincers, one advancing from Vladivostok on the coast of the Sea of Japan, and the other advancing from eastern Mongolia. The two pincers would advance rapidly across the southern portion of Manchuria and encircle the Kwangtung army inside the territory that remained. Once this had been accomplished, part of the force would turn inward and destroy the encircled army, while the majority would turn outward and advance south into Korea and occupied China. The Soviet plan called for the armies to move with all possible speed to take their objectives, as Stalin knew Japan was on its last legs, and he wanted to secure as much territory as possible before the war ended. Advancing across an area the size of Western Europe, the Soviet armies moved rapidly towards their objectives. The Japanese commanders had been away from their units doing a planning exercise at the time of the first attacks, and for the first 18 hours of the invasion, many of the units operated without proper orders from their commanders. The Kwangtung army, although under strength, was still a formidable fighting force, and where units had time to prepare, Soviet forces were halted in spectacular fashion. The Japanese troops, fighting while outnumbered often more than 10 to 1, and with inferior weapons, managed to hold small pockets behind Soviet lines for days, even as the Red Army advanced hundreds of miles in other sectors. With Manchuria having few roads, these pockets, often centered on towns, further frustrated the Red Army's already strained logistics system. However, small problems like lack of food and ammo hadn't stopped the Soviets before, and it didn't now either. Despite heroic and often fierce Japanese resistance, Soviet numbers and firepower proved overwhelming, 
and the two pincers continued to advance rapidly. Behind the lines, thousands of Japanese settlers who had come to Manchuria in order to expel its native Chinese population found themselves fleeing from the advancing Russians. Within a week of the first attacks, Soviet forces had nearly encircled all of Manchuria, with Soviet forces advancing from Vladivostok having nearly traversed the entirety of the line that now marks the Chinese border with North Korea, from Vladivostok to the Yellow Sea, while Soviet forces advancing from eastern Mongolia had nearly reached the Yellow Sea from the north as well. While all this was going on, Soviet troops invaded the southern portion of the island of Sakhalin, which had been split in half between Japan and Russia after the 1905 Russo-Japanese War. Soviet troops also conducted small-scale amphibious landings in Korea in attempts to secure more territory and cut off yet more fleeing Japanese troops. With these latest operations, the Soviets were well on their way to securing their dominance in Asia. But across the waters of the Pacific, it was one unit's job to ensure the Russians were given as little time as possible to subjugate Asia as they had Eastern Europe. Curtis LeMay and 21st Bomber Command, with their immense addition in firepower brought by the atomic bombs, were now at their full striking force. A thousand B-29s flying on half a dozen or more separate missions to different parts of Japan dropped over 14 million pounds of bombs on Japan every single day. LeMay was intent on keeping up the pressure as the Japanese became quite visibly more open to surrender. Resistance was weakening. Ideas beginning to take hold. The United States demanded nothing less than complete and unconditional surrender in accordance with the Potsdam Declaration. But why? The war LeMay was fighting from the Marianas was not a war in which the objective was to destroy an enemy army. Rather, it was a war to destroy an enemy ideology. The Allies had learned after the First World War's creation of the four dictatorships which now plagued the free world that simply destroying an enemy's army was not enough to ensure peace. The Allies had destroyed the German army in a series of massive offensives late in that war, resulting in the armistice. But the German people had never personally witnessed this utter collapse of the German military. The result was, through much political maneuvering, the creation of Nazi Germany using the stabbed-in-the-back mentality. The Allies wanted to avoid such a movement springing up in the Axis nations after the end of the Second World War, which was killing many millions more people than the first one did, and only 20 years later. The goal for LeMay was to make unmistakably clear to the Japanese people and government that the war situation was irreparable and hopeless, and in so doing, make the Japanese accept that anything, anything at all, would be better than what was. To get them to accept totally and completely that they had lost, and that Japan's fate was no longer her own to decide. Only this realization could both make possible an end of hostilities and provide the basis for a long-lasting peace. And it was this realization which the Japanese leaders were approaching as they met with the emperor in the dimly lit bunkers and tunnels beneath the imperial palace in Tokyo. After the atomic bombing of Hiroshima on August 6th, it took Japanese leaders two days to fully ascertain the facts of their situation. At first, they had little knowledge of the events in Hiroshima, as the bomb had destroyed the communications links between Hiroshima and Tokyo. The next day, August 7th, officials in Tokyo, piecing together new information coming out of Hiroshima, along with radio news reports being broadcast by the Allies, finally accepted that Hiroshima had indeed been struck by an atomic bomb. The Japanese Prime Minister, Kantaro Suzuki, had already expressed his desire to make peace with the Allies, and this new development gave Suzuki a good pretext to begin discussions with other top government officials about accepting the terms of the Potsdam Declaration. A day later, August 8th, with evidence of the nature of the bomb in his hand, Japanese Foreign Minister Shigenori Togo met with Emperor Hirohito in the Imperial Palace in Tokyo. Hirohito, horrified at the news, authorized Suzuki and Togo to begin convincing the other government officials to accept surrender. That same day, Japanese news bulletins informed the nation that Hiroshima had been considerably damaged by a, quote, new type bomb. Nowhere did it specify that the bomb was atomic in nature. With the emperor clearly in favor of surrender, the decision to surrender was all but made. The only question left to Japan's leaders now was how to go about doing it. The Japanese had been in negotiations with the Russians for months, starting back as early as June. Many Japanese leaders hoped that they could gain favorable peace terms by negotiating through Moscow. The Potsdam Declaration had been signed by Great Britain, the United States, and China, but not by Russia, as Russia was not yet at war. The Japanese government did not know that this would soon change. 
Holding out hope that a negotiated peace could be reached through Russian mediation, Japanese leaders decided to wait for a response from the Russian Foreign Minister Vyacheslav Molotov. The Japanese ambassador to Moscow had arranged a meeting with Molotov for the morning of August 9th, and Suzuki and Togo in Tokyo anxiously awaited the outcome of the meeting. The next day, August 9th, they were given a rude awakening, as that morning the Russians, instead of negotiating with the Japanese ambassador, handed him a declaration of war, as at that moment Russian troops had begun invading Manchuria. Adding insult to injury, the Americans dropped a second atomic bomb on Nagasaki later that morning. The Japanese had hoped to avoid accepting the terms of the Potsdam Declaration at all costs, but with the Russian entry into the war, it was clear to all that the time for negotiating had ended, and that the only way to end the war was to accept the terms of the Potsdam Declaration. Prime Minister Suzuki stating that, quote, the inevitable has finally occurred. That same morning, August 9th, the Japanese War Direction Council, referred to as the Big Six, held a meeting in the Imperial Palace. Half of the Supreme War Direction Council, headed by Prime Minister Suzuki, along with Foreign Minister Togo and Navy Minister Yonai, were convinced that accepting the Potsdam Declaration's terms was the only way out. The other half, though, headed by Minister of War Anami, along with Chief of the Army General Staff Umezu and Chief of the Navy General Staff Toyota, were not as convinced. All agreed that the situation was serious, but the military half of the council did not think surrender was yet necessary. Prime Minister Suzuki, desperate to find some common ground, began discussing with the military members on what terms they would accept surrender. In the end, the Japanese leaders decided on five conditions, which, if met, would be enough to allow surrender. 1. That the surrender would not endanger the national polity. 2. That the emperor and his family would remain unharmed. 3. That the Japanese military forces overseas be disarmed and demobilized by Japan herself. 4. That all war criminals be prosecuted by the Japanese government itself. And 5. That there be no allied occupation of Japan. While all agreed that the first two conditions were justified, the last three had only been added because of the insistence of War Minister Anami and Chief of the Army General Staff Umezu. Admiral Toyota, while agreeing that Japan should be in charge of her own disarmament, was more reluctant to support the terms that Japan should prosecute her own war criminals and not accept Allied occupation. Foreign Minister Togo did not like the additional demands, as he thought that asking for anything other than the safety of the Emperor would mean any negotiations would be dead on arrival when the terms reached the Allies. The Council continued to argue until it was finally adjourned later in the day, the members still being in deadlock. A few minutes after the meeting of the War Direction Council adjourned, Prime Minister Suzuki called another meeting, this time with the entire Japanese cabinet, not just the War Ministers, to discuss a potential surrender. Foreign Minister Togo presented the case for surrender, while War Minister Anami presented the case for remaining in the fight. While Togo did his best to prove the situation was hopeless, Anami managed to convince just under half of the cabinet that Japan might be able to secure better peace terms should they manage to inflict heavy casualties on the Allies during an amphibious invasion of Japan. Navy Minister Yonai, the only military man in the cabinet who supported surrender, stood up and insisted the council take a broader range of factors into consideration. Up until this point, the only matters that had been discussed had been military in nature. Yonai insisted the ministers responsible for production, food, and morale make reports to the cabinet on the state of Japan's war-making ability. The ministers dutifully gave their reports on these sectors, which painted a much darker picture than what War Minister Anami had tried to assert. Japan could no longer produce enough weapons and ammunition to arm her soldiers. Authorities were being forced to break open emergency reserves of food in order to make up for losses due to a decrease in imports caused by the sinking of much of Japan's merchant shipping by American submarines, and morale among the people was at an all-time low due to sustained American firebombing, food shortages, and now the atomic bomb. The deliberations continued through the afternoon and into the late evening, ending after seven hours at 10.30 p.m., still with no decision reached. At the end of the meeting, Prime Minister Suzuki took a poll. Three ministers, including War Minister Anami, were against surrender. Two ministers, including Togo, were for surrender. One or two had expressed no opinion, and the rest had a variety of intermediate positions. After the meeting adjourned, Suzuki contacted the Emperor and requested that the Emperor preside over another meeting of the Big Six. Hirohito agreed, 
and at 11.30 p.m., Suzuki and the War Cabinet met in the bunker under the Imperial Palace in order to discuss the surrender, in the presence of the Emperor. Suzuki hoped that the Emperor, being pro-surrender, could convince War Minister Anami and the Army and Navy Chiefs of Staff to support surrender, as Suzuki knew that only a direct message from the Emperor could sway their opinions. This confrontation in front of the Emperor himself would be the final showdown on the surrender question. Whatever the resolution of this meeting became would be the will of the Emperor, and the will of the Emperor was not to be disobeyed. Chief Secretary of the Council Sakomizu began the proceedings by reading aloud to the Emperor a Japanese translation of the Potsdam Declaration. After he had finished this, Prime Minister Suzuki placed a proposal on the Emperor's desk, which was to be the subject of debate for the meeting. It read, The Japanese government is ready to end the war under the terms of the three-power joint declaration of 26 July 1945, with the understanding that the said declaration does not comprise any demand prejudicial to the status of the imperial family under the fundamental law of the nation. After the resolution had been placed before the emperor, it too was read aloud to the members of the council. It came as a stab in the back to the anti-surrender faction, as it included none of the additional considerations they had fought for at the meeting that morning. First to speak was Foreign Minister Togo. He reiterated his points from the earlier meetings, outlining for the group the dire situation Japan was in, and that the Allies would not accept surrender if any other conditions were added. Navy Minister Yonai seconded Togo's points. War Minister Anami was steadfast in his belief that Japan could secure better terms if she waited for an Allied invasion, and insisted that the Emperor allow the war to continue for a few more months in order to secure the best possible terms. The two sides battled back and forth. Anami and the military leaders except for the Navy Minister Yonai were on one side, and the civilian leaders headed by Prime Minister Suzuki and Foreign Minister Togo were on the other side. By two in the morning, the arguments had grown stale, and there was nothing new to add. The time for a final decision had come. The Emperor had remained silent the whole time, in keeping with the traditions of the Japanese constitution created 70 years before. The Emperor was at the council only to give its decision the Emperor's seal, not to allow him to exert any influence over its decision. Prime Minister Suzuki, however, had other ideas, and for the first time in Japanese history, he insisted the Emperor state his opinion on the matter directly. Suzuki knew that the Emperor was pro-surrender, and that only a direct command from the Emperor could convince the militarists to surrender and back down. In violation of Japanese constitutional precedent, Suzuki had decided to use the nuclear option. After he asked the Emperor to give his opinion, he pleaded with the Council to accept the Emperor's decision as final. All agreed. The fate of Japan, and of the world, now rested in Emperor Hirohito's hands. The Emperor stood up, looked across the group, and began speaking. He announced that he fully supported Togo's position, and stated he wished for Japan's immediate surrender. He then gave his reasons. To continue the war in light of the world situation, and Japan's internal conditions would be suicidal, he said, adding that to end the war on this occasion was the only way to save the nation from destruction. He then criticized the military, pointing out that time and again it had assured Japan of its ability to destroy Japan's enemies, only to fail over and over again. He pointed to the defensive preparations themselves. They had assured him that the defenses in the Chiba area would be completed by mid-August, but it was almost the Ides of August and they were still far from completion. He had been promised many new divisions in order to shore up Japan's defenses, but these new divisions did not have any equipment with which to fight the enemy. Every promise made to him by the military had been broken. Why should he trust it now? He then went on, stating that to continue the war at this stage would be suicidal, and that the only way to ensure the survival of Japan as a nation and as a people was to accept the terms given to them by the Allies. In the final analysis, he stated that while he realized that many would be heartbroken by the surrender, most of all the hundreds of thousands of families who had lost sons, brothers, fathers, and husbands to the war, for more important reasons, the war must end as soon as possible. It was the first time the Emperor had ever stated his opinions directly to the government, and it was the most important input he would ever have to give. After the Emperor sat down again, Suzuki stood up and asked that this be made the outcome of the conference. After their rebuke by the Emperor, the militarists had no ground to stand on, and they relented. At 2.30, the meeting was adjourned. The ministers then returned to the outer cabinet and conveyed to all of the top officials the will of the Emperor. The question was settled. Japan would surrender. At 7 a.m. that morning, on August 10, 1945, 
The Japanese broadcast a message to the American, British, and Soviet governments through intermediaries in Sweden and Switzerland. Quote, In obedience to the gracious command of His Majesty the Emperor, who, ever anxious to enhance the cause of world peace, desires earnestly to bring about a speedy termination of hostilities with a view to saving mankind from the calamities to be imposed upon them by further continuation of this war, the Japanese government several weeks ago asked the Soviet government, with which neutral relations then prevailed, to render good offices in restoring peace vis-a-vis -vis the enemy powers. Unfortunately, these efforts in the interest of peace having failed, the Japanese government, in conformity with the august wish of His Majesty, to restore general peace and desiring to put an end to the untold suffering entailed by war as quickly as possible, have decided upon the following. The Japanese government is ready to accept the terms enumerated in the joint declaration which was issued at Potsdam on July 26, 1945, by the heads of government of the United States, Great Britain, and China, and later subscribed by the Soviet government, with the understanding that the said declaration does not comprise any demand which prejudices the prerogatives of His Majesty as a sovereign ruler. The Japanese government sincerely hopes that this understanding is warranted, and desires keenly that an explicit indication to that effect will be speedily forthcoming. Across the world, the Allied governments began a flurry of phone calls regarding the document. Was this a real Japanese surrender? Was it a trick? Should it be accepted? President Truman called for a temporary ceasefire pending the decryption and translation of the Japanese surrender message. But aside from top officials in the government and in the army, few were yet aware of the true content of the message. The only news that reached the public was that negotiations between the American and Japanese governments were now underway. On August 12th, after the Allies had fully decrypted and translated the message, President Truman deemed it unacceptable, as it was not yet a full acceptance of the Potsdam Declaration. The Declaration demanded nothing less than complete and unconditional surrender. He ordered that the ceasefire be lifted. That day, LeMay resumed his bombing campaign, launching dozens of raids. With Japan pinned against the wall, it would be maximum pressure from here on out until Japan fully accepted the Declaration, without any conditions. When Truman ordered the ceasefire lifted, and the bombing campaign to resume, he also ordered a response be sent to the Japanese government to their initial surrender offer. It read, With regard to the Japanese government's message accepting the terms of the Potsdam Proclamation, but containing the statement, quote, with the understanding that the said declaration does not comprise any demand which prejudices the prerogatives of His Majesty as a sovereign ruler, our position is as follows. From the moment of surrender, the authority of the emperor and the Japanese government to rule, the state shall be subject to the supreme commander of the Allied powers, who will take such steps as he deems proper to effectuate the surrender terms. The emperor will be required to authorize and ensure the signature by the government of Japan and the Japanese Imperial General Headquarters of the surrender terms necessary to carry out the provisions of the Potsdam Declaration, and shall issue his commands to all the Japanese military, naval and air authorities, and to all the forces under their control wherever located to cease active operations and to surrender their arms, and to issue such other orders as the Supreme Commander may require to give effect to the surrender terms. Immediately upon the surrender, the Japanese government shall transport prisoners of war and civilian internees to places of safety, as directed, where they can quickly be placed aboard Allied transports. The ultimate form of government of Japan shall, in accordance with the Potsdam Declaration, be established by the freely expressed will of the Japanese people. The armed forces of the Allied powers will remain in Japan until the purposes set forth in the Potsdam Declaration are achieved." End quote. After receiving the reply and hearing the reports of resumed bombing attacks, Prime Minister Suzuki immediately pushed for the acceptance of and compliance with these new terms. At 8.20 that morning, August 12th, War Minister Anami, along with Admiral Toyota, Navy Chief of Staff, went to the Emperor and pleaded with him to reject these new Allied terms, as they did not ensure the continued existence of the Imperial family as a political entity. The Emperor himself had not yet seen the text of the new terms, and reserved his judgment until such time as he had read the terms for himself. At 11 a.m., a copy of the terms was brought to the palace by Foreign Minister Togo, with the permission of Prime Minister Suzuki. A fierce debate between Togo and the militarists ensued as to the meaning of the terms. Togo argued that they amounted to an implicit assurance that the emperor would eventually be allowed back into politics, while the militarists argued that it would lead to chaos and make Japan essentially a vassal state. The emperor remained committed to peace, whatever the cost, and summoned a meeting at 3 p.m. to make official his acceptance of the new terms. At the same time, the Japanese cabinet was to meet and discuss their own response to the Allied broadcast. Many in the cabinet pressed Togo to ask the Americans for further clarification, but Togo feared this would only give the Americans cold feet, as it could be seen as a delaying tactic, and a hint that the Japanese were not serious about surrender. Later that evening, both meetings adjourned, 
but while the emperor was steadfast in his conviction to surrender, the government officials needed more convincing. Foreign Minister Togo spent that evening running around Tokyo, trying to convince as many statesmen as possible that the Allied broadcast did not mean the end of the emperor. Even Prime Minister Suzuki, one of the biggest advocates for peace, had been unsure, and Togo had to fight both tooth and nail to convince Suzuki that peace was still viable. At 2.30am on the 13th, the Japanese government received an urgent message from the Japanese ambassador to Sweden, which told them that the US had only just barely decided to leave out a clause which declared that the emperor would be removed from office. It went on to say that the British and Soviets were pressuring President Truman to remove the emperor, and that if Japan didn't surrender soon, that removal of the emperor from office may become one of the official terms. With this ammunition in hand, Togo finally had the tool he needed to rally support for surrender. At 9am on the 13th, the Supreme War Direction Council, or the Big Six, met once again to discuss surrender. As had been the case before, the meeting became a shouting match between the militarists and the pro-peace faction, with both sides making impassioned speeches to try and convince the other side of the air of their ways. The meeting lasted until 3pm, when Prime Minister Suzuki ordered the meeting adjourned as it was still in deadlock. He called for a meeting of the full cabinet to begin at 4pm. That meeting too turned into a shouting match, both sides again on the brink of civil war. Suzuki, who as Prime Minister was accustomed to leaving the debating for his subordinates, actively participated in the conversation, making his pro-surrender view plain for all to see. Mid-meeting, news arrived that the United States had stated in broadcasts that the Japanese government was deliberately delaying a reply, further hastening the cabinet's discussions. All the while, more and more Japanese civilians were being killed by yet more air raids by LeMay and his B-29s. Suzuki tried in vain to force another meeting with the Emperor, this time with the entire cabinet, but the militarists shot down this proposal, knowing it would mean their doom. The meeting adjourned at 7.30pm, still in deadlock. Later that night at 8pm, in a secret meeting in the residence of the Minister of War, several of the militarists plotted a coup against the Emperor and Prime Minister Suzuki. They tried to secure the support of the Minister of War himself, but he delayed, saying he would give them a response the following day. The meeting adjourned, but the conspirators continued their planning. The next morning, B-29s dropped thousands of leaflets over major Japanese cities, which contained the Japanese surrender reply of August 10th, alerting the Japanese population to the true extent of the surrender negotiations. At 8.30 that morning, a Japanese government official visited the emperor and handed him one of the leaflets, urging Emperor Hirohito to take immediate action. Every second they waited was another second that could potentially cause the army to revolt against the emperor at the behest of the militarists because of the surrender leaflets. With the news of the secret surrender negotiations now known to the Japanese public, it was possible that if Hirohito didn't act soon, the country could go into revolt. Prime Minister Suzuki arrived soon thereafter and petitioned the emperor to call an imperial conference, as Suzuki himself could not call one without the support of the militarists. Hirohito gave the order, and the entirety of the cabinet, along with the heads of the military services, were rushed to the palace for a conference, many still wearing their business suits as they did not have time to change into the formal palace attire. In the air raid shelter below the imperial palace, the wartime Japanese government met in full for the last time. The emperor was the first to speak. He reiterated his wish for peace, and asked the ministers of the various branches of government to agree with him, and allow the surrender to take place. Faced with a direct plea from the emperor, there was no other acceptable response aside from supporting the emperor's decision. Preparations then began to be made for the official surrender, this time with no conditions attached. Complete and unconditional surrender just as the Potsdam Declaration required. That night, the ministers all met to write the official surrender reply. Even the militarists joined them, as they had devoted their lives to serving the emperor, even if that meant obeying him on matters on which they disagreed with him. The final text was finished at 11pm, August 14th, 1945, but because of printer trouble, the message could not be broadcast and released to the public until the following day. At the same time, the emperor recorded a speech on a phonograph in the air raid shelter of the palace, which was to be broadcast the next day announcing his decision to surrender to the Japanese people. He did not know it, but at that moment, events were in motion that were about to put his life in danger. A group of Japanese military officers, after hearing about the emperor's decision to surrender, had decided to begin a military coup in order to avoid the humiliation of Japan which would be caused by such a surrender. These men were the diehards of the diehards, men determined to fight to the death at whatever cost, even if that meant overthrowing the emperor. Their plan was to order a regiment of Japanese troops to occupy the palace and force the emperor to rescind his surrender order at gunpoint. That night, Major Hatanaka and his men, a couple hundred of them, 
marched in the palace. They convinced the leader of the guard to join their side by lying to him about the motivations of the Japanese government leaders, and pretending that it was the emperor's true intention to remain in the fight, and that it was only by pressure from Prime Minister Suzuki and others that he had decided to surrender. Major Hatanaka's men entered the palace grounds, and by 1 a.m. had surrounded the palace itself. The palace police were disarmed, and all the entrances blocked by Hatanaka's troops, and his new allies in the Imperial Guard. Things soon began to break down, however. At the same time as the palace occupation, another group of conspirators raided Prime Minister Suzuki's office, intent on killing him. They found it empty, as Suzuki was at home sleeping. They next decided to look for Suzuki at his home, but before they got there, Suzuki was warned by a friend and managed to escape through a side gate as the conspirators entered his home. The conspirators searched his home, but could not find him. They set fire to his house and then went looking for other top ministers. Unable to find them, they set fire to their homes as well in retribution. Back at the palace, Hatanaka and his men were looking for the top palace officials as well as the recording of Emperor Hirohito's surrender speech. But these had been swiftly taken away from the palace grounds before Hatanaka's arrival, and were nowhere to be found. Hatsunaka's men did not find the men they were looking for either, and since they were not brave enough to confront the emperor directly, instead decided to sit around and wait. As all this was happening, the emperor calmly waited in his air raid shelter. Later in the morning, the local army commander informed Hatanaka and the conspirators that a large military force is on its way to resecure the palace, asking him and his men to give up peacefully. Hatanaka and the ringleaders committed seppuku, a ritual form of suicide, while the rest of the men were arrested, when the army force arrived. The coup was a failure. As the sun rose over Tokyo later that morning, August 15, 1945, the official surrender message drafted by Suzuki and the cabinet was sent to the Allies through Switzerland. With this broadcast, the war was officially over. The statement reads, With reference to the Japanese government's note of August 10th regarding its acceptance of the provisions of the Potsdam Declaration and the reply of the governments of the United States, Great Britain, the Soviet Union, and China sent by the American Secretary of State Burns under the date of August 12th, the Japanese government has the honor to communicate to the governments of the four powers as follows. 1. His Majesty the Emperor has issued an imperial rescript regarding Japan's acceptance of the provisions of the Potsdam Declaration. 2. His Majesty the Emperor is prepared to authorize and ensure the signature by his government and the Imperial General Headquarters of the necessary terms for carrying out the provisions of the Potsdam Declaration. His Majesty is also prepared to issue his commands to all the military, naval, and air authorities of Japan, and all forces under their control wherever located, to cease active operations, to surrender arms, and to issue such other orders as may be required by the Supreme Commander of the Allied Powers for the execution of the above-mentioned terms. That same morning, the Emperor's surrender speech was broadcast over the radio to the people of Japan. It was the first time in history that the Emperor's voice had been broadcast over mass media publicly. To our good and loyal subjects, after pondering deeply the general trends of the world and the actual conditions obtaining in our empire today, we have decided to effect a settlement of the present situation by resorting to an extraordinary measure. We have ordered our government to communicate to the governments of the United States, Great Britain, China, and the Soviet Union that our empire accepts the provisions of their joint declaration. To strive for the common prosperity and happiness of all nations, as well as the security and well-being of our own subjects, is the solemn obligation which has been handed down by our imperial ancestors and which lies close to our heart. Indeed, we declared war on America and Britain out of our sincere desire to ensure Japan's self-preservation and the stabilization of East Asia, it being far from our thought either to infringe upon the sovereignty of other nations or to embark upon territorial aggrandizement. But now the war has lasted for nearly four years. Despite the best that has been done by everyone, the gallant fighting of the military and naval forces, the diligence and assiduity of our servants of the state, and the devoted service of our 100 million people, the war situation has developed not necessarily to Japan's advantage, while the general trends of the world have all turned against her interest. Moreover, the enemy has begun to employ a new and most cruel bomb, the power of which to do damage is, indeed, incalculable, taking the toll of many innocent lives. 
Should we continue to fight, not only would it result in an ultimate collapse and obliteration of the Japanese nation, but also it would lead to the total extinction of human civilization. Such being the case, how are we to save the millions of our subjects or to atone ourselves before the hallowed spirits of our imperial ancestors? This is the reason why we have ordered the acceptance of the provisions of the Joint Declaration of the Powers. We cannot but express the deepest sense of regret to our allied nations of East Asia who have consistently cooperated with the Empire towards the emancipation of East Asia. The thought of those officers and men as well as others who have fallen in the fields of battle, those who died at their posts of duty, or those who met with untimely death and all their bereaved families pains our heart night and day. The welfare of the wounded and the war sufferers, and of those who have lost their homes and livelihood, are the objects of our profound solicitude. The hardships and sufferings to which our nation is to be subjected hereafter will certainly be great. We are keenly aware of the inmost feelings of all of you, our subjects. However, it is according to the dictates of time and fate that we have resolved to pave the way for a grand peace for all the generations to come by enduring the unendurable and suffering what is insufferable. Having been able to safeguard and maintain the Kokotai, we are always with you, our good and loyal subjects, relying upon your sincerity and integrity. Beware most strictly of any outbursts of emotion which may engender needless complications or any fraternal contention and strife which may create confusion, lead you astray and cause you to lose the confidence of the world. Let the entire nation continue as one family from generation to generation, ever firm in its faith in the imperishability of its sacred land and mindful of its heavy burden of responsibility and of the long road before it. Untie your total strength to be devoted to the construction for the future. Cultivate the ways of rectitude, foster nobility of spirit, and work with resolution so that you may enhance the innate glory of the imperial state and keep pace with the progress of the world. With those words, the fighting stage of World War II had ended. Across the world, millions gathered in the streets to celebrate. In Washington, D.C., President Truman issued a statement and soon thereafter waved from the veranda of the White House to crowds of celebrators in the streets. Because Japan was on the other side of the international dateline, it was August 14th in America and August 15th in Japan. News spread quickly across America via the radio, this being one such report, broadcast from the WTOP mobile van parked near the White House in Washington. You can hear the crowds cheering in the background. Now down in Washington are one of our Columbia correspondents who helped to get the news to us so quickly. Bill Henry is standing by. This is Bob Trout in New York. We're going to switch you quickly now to Washington. Bill Henry reporting. Bob, this is Bill Henry in the mobile transmitter just across from the White House, and I will read you the statement by the President. Dated August 14, 1945. This is the statement. I have received this afternoon a message from the Japanese government in reply to the message forwarded to that government by the Secretary of State on August 11. I deem this reply a full acceptance of the Potsdam Declaration, which specifies the unconditional surrender of Japan. In the reply, there is no qualification. Arrangements are now being made for the formal signing of surrender terms at the earliest possible moment. General Douglas MacArthur has been appointed the Supreme Allied Commander to receive the Japanese surrender. Great Britain, Russia, and China will be represented by high-ranking officers. Meantime, the Allied Armed Forces have been ordered to suspend offensive action. The proclamation of VJ Day must wait upon the formal signing of the surrender terms by Japan. This is Bill Henry. I have read you the latest bulletins that have come from the White House front, and I return you now to CBS in New York. 
Now, we've heard from Washington several times. We've heard from our correspondent, Bill Henry, in the White House. And now we're going to try another point in Washington. I'm not sure exactly what the point is, as a matter of fact, because our correspondent is in the CBS Mobile Transmitter in Washington, and he might be on almost any street in our nation's capital. At any rate, we take you now to the CBS Mobile Transmitter in Washington, Chris Coffin reporting. A tremendous, happy, wonderful, joyous crowd is in front of the White House, in front of the portico. The president had just come out. He's come out with his wife, and uh, he was all dressed in his, in his blue suit. He wore it at our press conference. Mrs. Truman came out with him, and seven other uh, members of the White House staff or cabinet. I think I saw Secretary Wallace and Dave Niles of the uh, White House staff, and they came out and came clear down to the... General Marshall was there, too. One of the soldiers told me. And... Uh, uh, the, the president walked down to the fence and saw one of his friends, the photographers, and waved to him and said hello. The president was very deeply moved. It was, it was quite apparent that the president was. He came down there and the crowds were out there just cheering, cheering him and uh, applauding him. And the streets out here in front are littered with confetti and people walking all around in kind of this careless, wonderful, happy holiday mood. In fact, a friend of mine, a major, uh, who has been fought, fighting in the New Guinea campaign, just stopped me and said it's beautiful. And he, he said it's the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. Uh, down the street here to our left, the trolley cars on Pennsylvania Avenue are all balled up because soldiers and, and sailors and even girls have climbed up on top of the trolley cars and, and uh, they, they can't get going. A few of them are going even with people on top of them. And people are milling all across the street. I've been in Washington for five years. I've never seen a crowd anywhere like this. We had thought that the Washington crowds weren't really crowds that, uh, that uh, took off and celebrated. But this is a wonderful celebrating crowd. It makes up, as the president said, for the celebration we didn't get to have on, on VE Day. Now we have uh, kind of a double-barreled uh, wonderful celebration on VJ Day. You can probably hear the trolleys clang as they go by because they have to clear a path to these people. The people are, are uh, walking about. There's no really wild shouting, but there's a happy look on their faces. And, and everybody's so glad it's, uh, it's over. I see a boy climbing a telephone pole to look, see if the president is coming back out again. Uh, I look, there's the president out there now. The president's coming out again. And he's behind the door in the portico. You can see and the people are crowding up against there. The policemen are uh, waving their whistles. And the president is going back in again. He wanted to see those people for himself, I think. It really means a lot for a guy from Missouri who has, who has come up the, the hard way, you might say. And to see the war end and see all these people out here in this marvelous demonstration, not only for the president, for, but it really is a demonstration for the United States, its greatness and its, uh, its power and its, uh, and its people. I think that's what it is. I think that people are all here to, to demonstrate their affection for their country. And the president is a symbol of it. The, the White House flag is flying, is flying very proudly. I don't know whether it's true or not, but I heard the other day that they were going to put the the flag that flew at Iwo Jima on top of the White House steps. I mean, on top of the White House uh, portico when the, celebra when the celebration was announced. You can probably hear the trolleys dinging by. There's no one inside them. Everybody's been on top of them all the time. And they're just beginning to move again. The police finally got them moving. Uh, besides the many, many soldiers here with battle stars and ribbons, there are also a lot of boys here with uh, discharge service buttons. The celebrations went on late into the evening and into the next morning. But while the job of winning the war had ended, the job of securing the peace had only just begun. The first order of business was to liberate all of the Allied prisoners Japan had taken during the war. To this end, U.S. troops prepared to land in Japan as soon as possible in order to ensure the captive GI's good treatment. B-29s also began flying missions over Japan called Mercy Missions, dropping parcels of food and other supplies to help those below. These were initially directed only to drop on POW camps, but as the situation improved, the effort was expanded to Japan as a whole. U.S. forces also began moving to secure all of the Pacific territories that had been bypassed during the island-hopping campaign. Small groups of U.S. troops landed on islands such as Wake Island, Truck Island, and Formosa in order to accept the capitulation of the Japanese garrisons there. The official surrender ceremony was scheduled for 9 a.m. on September 2, 1945, timed so that audiences in the U.S. and Europe could tune in to a live radio broadcast of the ceremony. The last large Japanese force to surrender would be General Tomoyuki Yamashita's army on Luzon, 100,000 of them having held out in the mountains and jungles of northern Luzon, despite eight months of repeated American and Filipino offensives. Yamashita, when informed of the surrender date, requested to hand over his sword a day later, on September 3rd, so that he could have the distinction of being the last major Japanese general to surrender. It was also a symbolic recognition 
that Yamashita had been the sole Japanese general in the Pacific Campaign not to have been defeated by the Allies. On the morning of September 2, 1945, an Allied fleet sailed into Tokyo Bay. At its head was the Iowa-class battleship USS Missouri. The Missouri, Admiral William Bull Halsey's flagship, had been selected to hold the surrender ceremony on its deck. There were no fleet carriers present in the force, as they had all been ordered out to sea, just in case the Japanese tried some trickery and attacked the force as it entered the bay. Sailors looked on from the decks of the ships at the coastline and saw the glints of sunlight reflecting off the barrels of the Japanese coastal defense guns. They were aiming right at the ships. However, the Japanese held their fire, and the force entered Tokyo Bay without a shot being fired, much to the relief of the crews. The fleet anchored in the southwestern part of the bay, just offshore from Yokohama. At around 8.30 a.m., the Allied delegation, including General Douglas MacArthur, who was appointed to be Supreme Commander of the Occupation of Japan, boarded Missouri by gangway from the destroyer USS Buchanan. They were greeted by Fleet Admiral Chester Nimitz, Commander-in-Chief, U.S. Pacific Fleet, and Admiral Bull Halsey. They were led forward to the veranda deck, next to turret number two, and took their spots for the ceremony. At 9 a.m., the Japanese delegation arrived in a small Navy launch. The delegation was headed by Mamoru Shigemitsu, Japan's new foreign minister, Foreign Minister Togo having resigned before the surrender could take place. The Japanese delegation was directed to the veranda deck, where the Allied representatives were waiting. The decks, turrets, superstructure, and everywhere in between on the Missouri were filled to the brim with sailors and Allied officials who wanted to get a glimpse of the ceremony. The whole ceremony, one of the most important in world history, would last only 20 minutes. As the Japanese eyed their surroundings, they saw two American flags. One had 48 stars and was flown on December 7, 1941 over Pearl Harbor, Hawaii. The other had 31 stars and was flown over Commodore Matthew Perry's flagship when his task force of American frigates forcefully opened Japan to the Western world in 1853. Both were displayed on the side of turret number two for the occasion. You can spot them in photos of the ceremony. MacArthur, Supreme Allied Commander for the Occupation of Japan, gave a short speech to open the ceremony. We are gathered here, representatives of the major warring powers, to conclude a solemn agreement whereby peace may be restored. The issues involving divergent ideals and ideologies have been determined on the battlefields of the world and hence are not for our discussion or debate. The terms and conditions upon which surrender of the Japanese imperial forces is here to be given and accepted are contained in the instrument of surrender now before you. As Supreme Commander for the Allied Powers, I announce it my firm purpose in the tradition of the countries I represent to proceed in the discharge of my responsibilities with justice and tolerance while taking all necessary dispositions to ensure that the terms of surrender are fully, promptly, and faithfully complied with. I now invite the representatives of the Emperor of Japan and the Japanese government and the Japanese Imperial General Headquarters to sign the instrument of surrender at the places indicated. The Japanese then signed the instrument of surrender, followed in quick succession by the Allied representatives. MacArthur used multiple pens in the signing and handed one to his close friend, General Jonathan Wainwright, who had been the American commander present for the surrender of Corregidor in the Philippines. He had only been free for two weeks before the ceremony, and his malnourished figure made clear for all the ordeal which he and his men had undergone. After the other Allied representatives signed the surrender document, MacArthur closed the ceremony with a benediction. Let us pray that peace be now restored to the world, and that God will preserve it always. These proceedings are closed. So ended the deadliest war in human history, and LeMay's Inferno with it. Shortly after MacArthur's remarks, hundreds of American aircraft began flying over Tokyo Bay, 
Over a thousand carrier planes from the fleet and over 500 B-29s from the Marianas flew over Tokyo Bay in a massive demonstration of force. The carrier planes flew over first, as they had in reality been first to face the Japanese at Pearl Harbor, then at the Coral Sea, and Midway, followed by the B-29s, who had now come to symbolize the destruction of Japan. In just under eight months, LeMay had taken the B-29 force from being a financial and strategic failure to being the most powerful air force in the history of mankind. The B-29s had nearly single-handedly dealt Imperial Japan her death blow. As the armies and navies of the Allies crept ever closer in anticipation of the invasion, LeMay and the superforts had dropped millions of tons of bombs on Japanese cities, rendering their colleagues' planned invasion of Japan unnecessary. It was the deadliest and most destructive bombing campaign in history, killing over half a million Japanese civilians and leveling over 72 square miles of Japanese urban areas. But it was also the most effective, ending World War II before many millions more would die in an invasion of Japan. Was such destruction worth it? LeMay thought so, and so did everyone else at the time. War is hell, and makes demons of us all. In the inferno that was created by LeMay and the Superforts during the dying days of humanity's deadliest conflict, the flames of hell itself were unleashed upon Japan. As B-29s began flying en masse over Tokyo Bay, the inferno had finally ended, much as it had begun, with a mission to Tokyo. However, unlike the first one, this mission brought the laurels of peace not the fires of war. That's all for LeMay's Inferno here on Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM. I've been your host, Carter McNish. I sincerely hope you enjoyed this documentary series and perhaps learned a thing or two along the way. If you would like to hear the previous episodes, check out Radio Free Hillsdale's SoundCloud page where you'll find full recordings of each episode of this show and all of the other shows Radio Free Hillsdale produces. On behalf of all the people who worked on LeMay's Inferno, thank you for listening. Here's a toast to the host of Men We Boast the Army